Amen. Text this morning is from John, again, from John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. I'll be reading through the first four verses of chapter 16. And these are the words of God. <clears throat> if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these, these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you remem may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. These are the words of Christ. Let's ask his blessing now. Father, this word, this gospel from John, comes from your inspiration. It is God-breathed. By your mighty spirit wind... Blow this truth into our hearts and minds and souls. Make us see the world as Jesus sees it. Let us see ourselves in light of it. Let us measure all truth claims by it. And let it feed and mold and shape us. We thank you for your word and seek your blessing from it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Well, this farewell discourse, as obvious it is from the reading of it, now takes quite a sober turn as Jesus speaks to his disciples. Much turmoil is just around the corner for Jesus, and he knows it. But just on the heels of that, hatred and persecution will be directed at his followers as well. They are not going to escape what is going to occur uh, in, for Christ. They are not going to escape either. There is a cost, he lets them know, for following him. There's a cost for following Jesus. He was savagely opposed despite his ministry of healing and godly teaching. And so it will go for those who follow him. Paul would write in 1 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Paul warns. All who desire to do so will be persecuted. Is that an overstatement? Is, is that an overstatement? Does it feel like it? Not for the apostles it wasn't. Not for many of the first century believers. And not for millions who have over the history of the church suffered persecution in all kinds of ways. But why not us? Why not us? Should, do we live in some kind of a bubble? Should we be expecting persecution? 
Let's consider that as we consider Jesus speaking to his disciples. I'm going to walk through the text again and just make a few comments as we go and then talk about this subject a little bit uh, more in depth. So if you go through the text again with me, um, we see here in, in verse 18, Jesus turns from speaking about having been grafted into the vine and abiding in him and all that comes, all the good that comes from abiding in him. Abiding in Christ is real. It's, it's real. It's, it's life-changing, life-producing, life-nurturing. It's wonderful. Abiding in Christ is real. But now he turns and says, and so if the world hates him, because you abide in him, because he abides in you, if the world hates him, then you can darn well bet they, they are going to hate you as well. That's verse 18. The antithesis demands this. There is an antithesis in this world we'll talk about, and that antithesis demands that they hate you. He chose you out of the world, basically, and put you on their enemy's team. You've been traded, you've been drafted, and you're on the other team now. They don't like you anymore. That's verse 19. Jesus had said that a servant is not greater than his master. Remember, that's what he said after he had washed their feet and shown them love and care and humility. And he said, and, and he said but, but a servant is not greater than his master. You should do the same. You should love one another. But now he takes that saying and applies it in another context that also we will suffer persecution from the world because he did. Verse 20. Those who persecute faithful Christians are proving that they don't know God. They're going to claim that they're doing these things in the name of God, in the name of the Father, but they're actually proving that they don't know him at all, verse 21. And they can't say that they hate Jesus without proving that, in fact, they hate the Father, that they hate God. You can't say, you can't reject Jesus and say you're not rejecting God. You can't say you love, um, you love God when you hate Christ and his teachings and his ways and his demands. Verses 22 through 24. And this fulfilled the words of the prophets. In verse 25, um, he, he says, But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. That comes from one, that actually comes from three different um, psalms of imprecation, imprecatory prayers. That, we sang one. We sang one that has that phrase in it, the second half there of, of uh, Psalm 35, but it's also in Psalm 69, Psalm 109. Um, the, these are psalms of imprecation, calling, God, calling on God to break the arms and break the teeth of his enemies because they are persecuting his people. And, and as, as we sing these imprecatory psalms, you might think to yourselves, why am I singing these? This, this is no sweet Jesus moment here for me. Well, apparently Jesus knows the Psalms quite well. He's going to quote from them. He's, he's going to sing them with his followers. He, he knows them. And as you sing these imprecatory Psalms, you ought to think about a number of things. One of the things you ought to think about is while you may not find immediate application, you have brothers and sisters across the world today who do, and you can sing on their behalf. In addition, we are always singing as the body of Christ, the voice of Christ, we're singing back to him his own story. And he was persecuted. He was treated with great hostility. We are singing on behalf of him as we sing these, um, as we sing these psalms as well. Jesus is not ashamed of these psalms at all. Neither should we. Jesus is glad to sing these psalms before the Father, and so should we. He says, this, this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They had no reason to hate me. I went around and healed people. And what do they do? They spit upon me. 
they, 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 they put me through a, a, a fake trial in the middle of the night so that then they can um, scourge me and, and put me uh, up for crucifixion. This is what they've done to me without cause. They, they had no cause. That's verse 25. And then in verse 25, he, uh, uh, 26 and 27, he turns and speaks again of the Holy Spirit coming, the Holy Spirit that is going to come. That Holy Spirit that is going to bring the fruit of the Spirit, that is going to, going to abide in you. That's going to cause this sense, this, this well, reality of Christ abiding in us by His Holy Spirit. This Spirit that is going to testify to you that you are a child of God. This, this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit that God is going to use through you to be a witness and a testimony to the rest of the world that they will now hate you because you are testifying in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's also what comes. Verse 25, or 26, 27. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, the truth that the world hates, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. You will also testify. When it says here, testify and bear witness, those two words are the same in Greek. They are martyreo, they are where we get our word martyr. You, you will testify. You will be a martyr for me. The, the word didn't mean literally um, or didn't mean always um, that you are going to testify unto death. But it was a testimony with dedication. It was a testimony from the conscience. It was a testimony um, supposedly without compromise, whatever the cost. You are going to testify that, in fact, Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is King of kings, that he did come to save the world, that he has called us all to repent of our sins, to call upon him in faith, and to be saved. God says when the Holy Spirit comes, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to be testifying to. That's what he's saying to the disciples. And in the lives of the disciples, the lives of these apostles, we find that's exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And no, this is a good place to highlight the first application, though, of this discourse, as I said, that it's to the apostles who have been with him from the beginning. In verse 27, um, he, uh, it's always good to consider the passage in light of the first application. He's, he's talking specifically to the apostles, to those disciples who have been with him from the beginning. We haven't been with him from the beginning. It will follow for us, the, the, the rest of the disciples as well, but he's speaking particularly to the apostles. Jesus then warns them now so they don't apostatize when it happens. So it's going to happen to these apostles very shortly. So in verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. In, in other words, when this great, you're going to experience my resurrection. You're going to experience me being among you. And then you're going to watch me ascend into heaven. And it's going to, you're going to feel like, man, all glory is coming. No, <laughs> all hardship is about to come upon them. All kinds of hardship. And I'm telling you these things now, Jesus says, so that when it happens, you won't be, you won't be made to stumble. You won't think, well, why is this all happening? You'll, you'll understand why it's all happening. This, is, this, was from, uh, this was the hand of the Father as well. So he warns them that they won't uh, apostatize. They won't stumble when it happens. For those who oppose them, he says, will kick them out of the synagogues and even kill them thinking that they are sincerely serving God as they do so. They're going to kick them out of the synagogues. The synagogues, remember, they're not evil, wicked places. The synagogues are the upstanding places of worship in the Jewish society. They're where the 
The religious people are. They're where the good and upstanding citizens of that Jewish community are. You're going to be kicked out of that. You're going to be thrown out of that and even killed. Again, proving that in fact, while they claim to know the Father, they don't know the Son or the Father. You can't claim to know the Father if you've rejected the Son, verse 3. And then finally, Jesus tells them these things. He says, I'm telling you these things before they happen, that they might remember things are not out of his control when they do in verse 4. And probably that's the first great application for us as well. That when these things happen, we are to remember that Jesus told us they were going to happen. When persecution occurs, we're to be told that all, we are to remember that we were told that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like it's not, one of the things that I think we have to be careful about is that we don't have a, a trigger reaction when, when there's any kind of persecution, when there's any kind of reviling, when there is any kind of pushback to you individually or to the church generally um, that, um, from, from society that, oh, we must have done something wrong. If they're, if they're mad at us, if they don't like us, if, if they think that we're awful, we must have done something wrong. No, the first thing you should notice is this is exactly what Jesus said is going to happen. That's, that's what Jesus says is going to happen. And this is because of the inevitable antithesis that is around us. The world will hate Christians because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, testifying or giving witness, bearing witness of Jesus as the light of the world and making us sons of light, a light that they hate. John chapter 3, John commenting on that great verse, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, goes on to talk about those who reject him living in condemnation. He says in John chapter 3, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So you in Christ are walking lanterns of the light of Christ. You're told not to hide your light under a bushel. We are walking lanterns of Christ, of Jesus Christ, of his truth, of his righteousness, of his definition of what it means to be holy, of what is good and what is evil. You are walking lanterns of the truth. And you have to understand, when you're a walking lantern of the truth, of light, and you walk into a crowd of darkness, they don't like it. They don't want you there. They don't want your message. They, don't, they want to snuff you out. That's their natural reaction, just as it was ours before the light came to us and transformed us. That's the, that is the inevitable antithesis. This antithesis in the world is among all humanity. Two teams, as it were, set at enmity towards one another. They are the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Set up by God in chapter 3 of Genesis as he speaks to the woman and he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. This, This is the way it's going to go from now until the end. There are two teams. Now, there's all kinds of groups of hatred in this world. You can have um, the rich hating the poor. You can have the blacks hating the whites. You can have the um, different, other different ethnic groups at war with one another. You can, have, you can have all kinds of social structures where there's hatred toward one another. 
But nothing comes close to the enmity and the ultimate enmity that exists between those who are in, the, uh, in darkness and those who are in light. That's where all enmity, that's where really all enmity begins and ultimately is the foundation of all enmity between uh, mankind. It's the enmity that exists between the serpent of the seed and the woman. When, when God accepts our righteous offerings... While refusing to accept the offerings of the sons of Cain, envy, hatred, and murders follow. So after Adam and Eve, we are told the story of Cain and Abel. Listen to Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew his Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. So all of a sudden we're jumping ahead decades later. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Cain is very angry that God would not accept his offering. And but he can't punch God, so he punches Abel. He can't, he can't attack God, so he goes after the ones that God has approved of. And this is, the, this, this, this is not just like a one-time event. This is built into human, in the fabric of being fallen humans. If you're fallen, you, you already know, you know what righteousness is. You know who God is, we're told in Romans 1. And when, and when you see, when you see God accepting the sacrifices of the righteous and not accepting yours, this is why the world hates followers of Christ and always will. John writes in 1 John 3, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Do not marvel. We smell like death, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.16. We smell like death to those who are perishing. You smell to them. The way of Cain is to seek one's own self-justification while reacting in anger and revenge against those whose words and actions condemn their words and actions. That's the way of Cain. The way of Cain is, is a way of self-justification. What I'm doing is right. And how dare you tell me what I'm doing is wrong. And I will stand against and stop anyone who is telling me otherwise. They will hate our lives of grace and our love of righteousness. And they will seek to condemn our beliefs in the name of tolerance and enlightenment and liberty, along with redefining righteousness and religion, redefining love, redefining God, redefining man, redefining life and existence, redefining everything, redefining reality. Most of us, most of us are not really caught under the crosshairs individually of this, this growing um, redefinition of everything, this growing persecution of any kind of, uh, any kind of stand for righteousness. But some are in it. Some, are, some of you are occasionally find yourself right in the middle, in the middle of a storm. But when we're not when in the middle of a storm, we, and, and since we're not right in the middle of it, we don't realize the dizzying speed right now of this progressive 
um, hostility in our land. You hear about it, you read about it, but for many of us, we're not experiencing it firsthand at the moment. But Jesus warns there's inevitable persecution. Um, it's, it's, was asked to me, why is it that we, in, in our lifetime, we have suffered so, we, we have not suffered persecution for the most part. And, and, and really, it is the grace of God. We are, we, we are still living on kind of the fumes of those who were persecuted for their faith and traveled and left from that persecution and established the land according to the, righteous, the righteousness of God, according to his, his ways, and, and building a society that in many ways upfront and honestly honored God and Christ. That's gone in the public realm. And the fumes are, are, are of the fumes that there, there is some protection or some grace or some glory or some beauty that, it, that came from that for a time is quickly fading away all, all around us. And so the, the antithesis always existed. But now, um, um, we, we're living in a day, and, and really, the, the, since the time of the, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on, Christ, on the Christian church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we have the power and the witness of the Holy Spirit. And God says, with that power and witness we should expect that there is going to be much conflict, that there's going to be much pushback. Jesus tells us to expect it. He says that they will hate you because, he hates, because they hate me. He says that in verse 18, verse 20, in chapter 6, verse 2. Over and over again, he's saying, they're going to hate you because they hate me, and I'm in you. Christians are those, he says, who have been chosen out of the world, verse 19, a world that is under the wrath of God. Romans, in Romans 1, it says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the definition of those who are under the wrath of God. Those who are against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The ones who claim to know the truth and have a standard of righteousness according to Christ are going to be suppressed one way or another. If you're going to hold to the truth, then you and that truth are going to be suppressed one way or another. And you're going, to be, you're going to be suppressed with unrighteousness. This is, why, this is why you have this tendency, all of us have this tendency, to kind of lay low, right, with your Christian faith. You just have a tendency, you're out there in the world, lay low. Why, why is that immediately our... You just kind of be careful before you say too much about who you believe the king of kings is. Be careful before you say too much about what, what you believe ultimate truth is as though there actually was ultimate truth. Uh, you, you, you tend to be careful before you say, um, you, you, you know what, you're calling evil good and good evil. And, and I want to, I'm gonna, by what standard are you, are, are you holding to those facts? No, we, we, we were really careful about that because we know what the reaction is going to be. The reaction is going to be an attempt to suppress that truth with unrighteousness and in unrighteousness. So today, the wrath of God upon our world has become more and more evident. What's happened is he has given us up to the uncleanness. In Romans chapter 1, we really come to understand that because, because of our sin, because of turning away from Christ as a nation, as a people, um, as defined in the scriptures... It's not just that the wrath of God is coming, but that the wrath of God has come. 
that the judgment of God has come upon us, upon this people, this uncleanness. It says in, in Romans 1.24, it says that he has given us up to uncleanness. And then listen, what, what does that look like? It says, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. How, could, could we have a more succinct summary of exactly what we are doing in this generation? Well, apparently, God is the one who has turned us over to this. He has turned us over in his wrath to this uncleanness, defined as the lust of our hearts and the dishonoring of our bodies. We're a nation that dishonors our bodies, and then we codify it. We legislate it. We demand it. We, we make everybody pay homage to it. And then we go and our, teach our youngest children as early as possible to believe that that's the truth. So that another generation grows up even further and further in the darkness. So it's never simply that you're preaching Jesus. It's, it's never simply that we shouldn't really, we shouldn't deal with all these social issues, all these social rights and wrongs and all. We just need to preach the gospel, just preach Jesus. No, that's all about Jesus. That's all about his lordship and his kingship. That's all about, that, well, all that the society is, is giving itself to is, is the reason Jesus Christ came. To save sinners from their dirt, from their sinful hearts, from the rebellion against him and how that plays itself out with a, not just a hatred of God, but a hatred of his image. A destruction of body. A destruction of what it means to be community. A destruction of anything Trinitarian in, in its look. And so you, 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 they see us as a son of Abel, and they begin to do what any son of Cain would do. That's what's going on. Now, it's not going on at the moment. It is not going on in what you might call out. It is an outright persecution, but you might not even call it right now persecution. But open your eyes. The, the, the plays are being made. The, 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 the enemy is, is gathering together. And in, in the history of, of Christianity, we ought to see something is upon us. He goes on in 16, 1 through 4. I want to look at this again. He says, 16, 1. He says, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Earlier he said, um, remember he says, let your heart not be troubled. And he's going to say again, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And he's going to pray for them. There is, there, he doesn't tell us these things so that we are afraid. <coughs> That's not the point. He tells us these things so that we're, we, we address the world honestly. He says, well, I tell you these things so that you're not going to stumble, so you're not going to fall away. You know that I knew that this is the way it was going to go. And you should know that this is the way it's going to go because you saw what happened to me, Jesus says. And then he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. So Jesus says that these things, he says these things to those disciples who would soon undergo this very persecution that he describes in 16, 1 and 2. Peter just that night would deny the Lord Jesus that evening. He would, he would stumble. He'd be back away. I don't know him. No, I, no, I don't know him. No. And then he curses 
I don't know him. And then the rooster crows. That evening, after Jesus said these things. But 50 days later, 50 days later, 50 days after the resurrection, I'm sorry. 50 days after the resurrection at Pentecost, full of the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit that it says in, 24, in 26, 27, that when the Helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear, bear witness. 50 days later at Pentecost, full of the Holy Spirit, a fiery-tongued testimony comes forth. Just a few pages further in Acts chapter 2, just a few words from Peter's famous sermon. That same Peter, 50-some days later, would, just, would say these words. Verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He goes on and then closes in uh, 32, verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which all are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel... This is the house of Israel that had crucified Jesus, that had the authority to grab Peter. He stands full of the Spirit and says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. <coughs> That's what the Holy Spirit does. Peter's arrested at least three times for preaching Christ. Acts chapter 4, 5, and 12. And when writing to the dispersed Jews after the persecution in Jerusalem, scattered all over the empire, Peter tells them not to think it strange to find themselves persecuted even more. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. So in, in, and so from this, we can also see that that application that went to just the disciples and apostles spills over then to that first century church. Spills over to all the rest that are following Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, what will happen? What will the ungodly and the, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Well, most likely Peter was arrested again. Church historians say that uh, according to the prophecies of, uh, of Jesus in, at the end of uh, the Gospel of John, Peter was led away in chains and was crucified, most likely upside down. So Peter, this same Peter who denies the Lord, now filled with the Holy Spirit, is giving testimony even in the midst of the persecution. James, the brother of John, was killed with a sword, we're told in Acts chapter 12. So the brother of the one who wrote this gospel we're studying was killed with a sword. And John himself was exiled to the island of Patmos. Early church historians testify that all of the other apostles were martyred in various places. In their missionary journeys and their setting up of churches, um, all scattered all throughout <coughs> even Egypt and India, Armenia, Rome, Paul began, here's the interesting one, that we go back to, to John again. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he is offering God's service. 16.2. Well, that's exactly how Saul of Tarsus begins his ministry. <laughs> his ministry begins to the, the group of Pharisees that he is a part of, to the, to the synagogues that he wants to defend, to the Jewish faith that he believes has, has, has brought him righteousness because he's kept the law. And so Paul, under his Hebrew name at the time, Saul, his person of the, of the church was as an, a righteous Pharisee, self-justifying Pharisee, arresting, imprisoning, and seeing to death Christians, believing that he offered God service. But God often puts down his enemies by making them his friends. And so in Acts chapter 9, as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Note that in the midst of the persecution, it, it, Jesus was not absent. And in his time, at, at the right time, Jesus intercedes, Jesus stops, stops Paul in his tracks and changes everything with regard to his life. So he would say, these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you remember that I told you of them. <clears throat> so time and again, Paul then, on his missionary journeys, was put out of the synagogues. Time and again, he's thrown out of the synagogues where he preached that Jesus was prophesied Messiah. It says five times he received 39 lashes in a long list of the persecutions that, that uh, Paul received. To receive 39 lashes was a punishment meted out by the synagogue authorities. That means th those, were, those were lashes that were brought by churches <laughs> upon Paul <coughs> for preaching Jesus. And throughout history... Christians have found themselves in different places and times under severe, severe persecution. Whether dipped in tar and lit as human candles for Nero's parties, thrown to lions and wild beasts in coliseums, tortured, exiled, and killed, burned at stakes or imprisoned to starve to death, decimated as a people in mass genocides, history shows that King Jesus threatens world, worldly powers. You, you see, the, the, the persecution 
always comes from these authorities, civil and religious authorities, that will attack those who would claim that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus defines what is right and what is wrong, that Jesus um, offers salvations to sinners, and that's what we are. That's what brings persecution. And so, um, and, and Tertullian, early in early church history, Tertullian is famous of having said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so these words of Jesus were no overstatement. They're no exaggeration. They are no hyperbole. But I think we think it is. I think we still, we think that it is. We take it and we sit in our relatively safe middle-class homes in America. One Christian who suffered under communist persecution wrote of the American church these words. He said, so much popular Western evangelical religiosity is so shallow and selfish. It promises so much and demands so little. It offers success, personal happiness, peace of mind, material prosperity, but it hardly speaks of repentance, sacrifice, self-denial, holy lifestyle, and willingness to die for Christ. Probably describes still the state of the American church in many ways. But times are changing. Authorities are becoming more tyrannical and are pushing their materialistic, egalitarian, anti-Christian, social, Marxism worldviews, all of them hostile to the gospel. For the first time at our church, first time in, in, in my life, um, we were actually told by officials that we could not gather as the church to worship for reasons of health and safety for the, general, for the sake of the general community. I want you to think about what they were saying, because what they were saying is a play they can use, just switch it up just a little bit, for the sake and the health, for the sake of the safety, all you got to do is define terms. And the play can be made and run over and over and over again. It is run over and over and over again in the history of the church, in many in, in nations all over the world. Our, our Eastern European brothers, who I've spoken with over the last 20 plus years, who saw their countries experience the bloodiest persecutions in the history of the church during the 20th century due to atheistic communism, scratch their heads at us and have warned us for decades that they see the beginnings of the same kind of persecutions coming our way because we are letting them. I fear these words may soon become very clear to us in the near future. And if so, then we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to not be surprised. Of course we pray for um, reformation and revival, for God to have mercy upon our land. We are not... uh, uh, We're not stoic about this. We plead with God for his mercy. We plead for an awakening to take place upon our land. We pray that our children growing up with a Christian education, an understanding of the world far better than most of us had, are able to stand on our shoulders and bring sanity into the world um, as they speak the words of Christ and build build society, um, Christian societies uh, around us. 
But if it comes, we ought to remember that Jesus gave these words to us. I told you these things were going to come. You should not be surprised or shocked. In fact, you should rejoice in the persecutions. You've been promoted. You've been promoted. The blessing of suffering not only for but with Jesus is one for which we are called to be truly, truly thankful. Philippians 1.29. For you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Paul would write from prison. When Peter and John were publicly beaten for their refusal to cease preaching Christ's gospel, they departed. They're out there preaching Christ. Um, they, were, they were preaching Christ in, uh, somewhere in the temple or out in the courts near the temple. And they're preaching Christ. And in modern parlay, they heard, this is a safe space. You can't say those things. Right? And they're kicked out. And they depart rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Acts 5.41. In the face of persecutions, they prayed for more opportunities to preach the truth. Acts 4.29. They don't say, God, please stop the persecutions. They say, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Paul asks for the same prayers while he's in prison. As he closes Ephesians chapter six, uh, the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, he says, And pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Not, not because he had a little bit of nerves in him, you know, you know it, was, it was tough for him to get up and be a public speaker, made him a little nervous. No, because they might kill him. So grant me boldness that I would utter the truth without compromise, that I would take advantage of any opportunity God gives me. I think it's amazing when, when he's being dragged in, in, the courts, um, in, in the courts of Jerusalem, he's being dragged out because there's this, this violent mob that's attacking him, and they pull him out, and they take him up the steps, and, and, they're, and, he, and then he turns to them and he says, hang on, let me speak to these guys. I see an opportunity to preach the gospel. And he turns and addresses them in their Hebrew language. Another opportunity to tell the world about Jesus. Oh God, grant us that kind of boldness and promote us into that kind of a, 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 that kind of a people. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 to the wonderful Beatitudes and the last one, the last Beatitude. Because this needs to get deep into us as we think about what it means to go through persecutions. Also, I think this passage gives us a little bit of an indication of the persecutions that in many ways, many of you, and in some ways, all of us are already under. Matthew chapter five, there's the eight Beatitudes. The last one is in chapter 10 or verse 10, which is then followed with commentary. The only Beatitude with commentary. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So that's going on. Rejoice. Here's what you're to do. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You've been promoted. And here is your bonus. The nature of persecution is not always the shedding of blood, but includes and sometimes begins 
with reviling and speaking all kinds of evil against us, against you, falsely. And this defines the cancel culture of today. Christians are not despised for having a gentle and general civic kindness, but rather when we stand for Christ in his righteousness. In fact, if we have a gentle and general civic uh, kindness, we are just proving to them that all people are basically good, just like we, always, we, we all believe. You're basically good, and, we're, and you're acting like good citizens, and we're acting like good citizens. There's no trouble at all. But if you stand for Christ and his righteousness in your gentle, kind way, you say, no, a, a man can only be a man. A man can't be a woman. God created male and female in his own image. And you say it with all gentleness and all due respect to the person you're talking to. That's not considered being nice anymore. Now, this is, of course, no excuse for being obnoxious. But you're going to be charged with being obnoxious. Because you stink, because you smell of the truth, you smell of life, and they love death. You look like light, and they love darkness. So there's no excuse for being a jerk, like, like Peter said. You're not to be busybodies. You're, 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 you're not to, um, uh, you know, to, to be a, a real jerk. But not, but not according to their words, and not, not according to their definitions. And then again, as I said, it, it, should, it should not come as a surprise or a sign that you did something wrong when they revile you, when they mock you, when they speak evil against you. And then our response should be to shout for joy, receive our gift, our promotion, our blessing. Apparently, in this passage, there's nothing wrong with looking forward to the rewards. Verse 12, great is your reward in heaven. In fact, we are to keep our minds fixed on our eternal inheritance with great anticipation. We are to understand that we live in, in, in bodies which are broken vessels. They aren't going to last. And there may be many things that happen to these broken vessels, including undergoing all kinds of affliction. But Paul, who would write in 2 Corinthians, so he's been in prison. But, uh, he's out as he's writing this time, but he's been imprisoned. He's been beaten many times. That's, it's in 2 Corinthians that he gives that long list. And he says of that long list... For our light afflictions, we're talking five times 39 stripes, our light afflictions, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal." So Christ was persecuted, crucified, and this led to his atonement for our sins and the salvation of the world. It goes from persecution to victory. Persecution leads to victory. Persecution is your promotion that leads to glory. The present rumblings of growing persecution in our land are not signs of the demise of the church. Certainly, a great and deep pruning and sifting may come through persecution. There will be those who will say, uh, I, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not following Christ anymore. And God's pruning will take place. So, but we're not in the midst of a, we, I'm sorry, we are in the midst of a massive religious, political, and cultural transformation, one author said. He went on, but we cannot assume that this is all a downsize. God shakes what can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What we're seeing is a great tumult 
or the rise and beginnings of a great tumult, which becomes a great shaking of those things that can be shaken, so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. So the question is this, are you prepared to take a stand for righteousness? Are you prepared? This was part of the, really the topic around our men's conference. If you have not had a chance to listen to those tapes, uh, to the tapes, if you have those recordings, then you should, you should go to our website and you should listen to them. That's, that's what we were talking about. Are you prepared to take a stand for righteousness in the world today? How are we to do that well? The other question for you individually, each one of us, is have you honestly done business with Jesus? Have you honestly done business with Jesus? Oftentimes, people come to Christ for not the greatest of reasons. She's really cute. She goes to church. Okay, I'll follow. It, it, amazingly, God uses such decisions to actually cause real conversions to take place time and time and time again. He uses imperfect churches, imperfect messages, imperfect people all the time to, to do his perfect work. But the question still remains for you, have you done real business with Jesus? Are you prepared to stand for him, whatever the cost? And, and do so because of you know of the reward for having done so. This is not just about, it is not a call to stoicism. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. You just stand for Christ if it's the right thing to do. No, we're, we're told, believe there's great glory and blessing coming for your faithfulness. The other thing to notice is this is not an, a sign of the end times. No, sorry, wrong. There, the church has seen persecutions, all kinds of apostasies, all kinds of horrible things have happened time and time again. This is not a sign of the end times. This is the defeated devil still thrashing about like a fish thrown out of the water before it dies. That's what's going on. The victory of Christ is sealed, determined, and sure. And so is his victory. John's gospel began, and I've told you many times, the first 18 verses of John's gospel is the, the topics that he brings forth. It is the preface. It is um, the table of contents. And John 1, 4 and 5 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus, who suffered great persecution and now sits in victory at your right hand, ruling the nations, grant us courage to speak the truth and live in your righteousness in our day. Use the events of reviling and mocking, of suffering for your name to bring glory to you as more and more enemies of Christ are instead reconciled with him by his blood and brought into the kingdom of heaven by the work of your great and holy spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.